when you realize, okay, you have some superpowers and they're no better or worse than your friend's superpowers, they're probably different. Just like you have an ideal diet and the foods that are most compatible with your body might not be the same as your friend. And neither of them is good or bad. They're just different. So it's your job to understand your strengths and your weaknesses and figure out what strengths do you want to double down on and what weaknesses are you going to say, oh, thank God, I know I'm weak at that. I can hire that. You're listening to the Almost 30 Podcast, hosted by Krista Williams and Lindsay Simsek. Almost 30 started as a conversation about the transition from our 20s to our 30s. But then we realized life is full of transitions. So we expanded our mission. We are an intuition-led, wellness-focused lifestyle podcast that promises to deliver authentic conversations, diverse points of view, and insights rooted in optimism, growth, and intention. The Almost 30 Nation community is a group of purposeful dreamers who are smart, passionate, and always seeking the full potential in every aspect of their lives. At Almost 30, we're making magic together. We dream it, and then we do it. Thanks so much for tuning into the Almost 30 Podcast. Here we go. Welcome back to Almost 30. It's your girls, Krista and Lindsay. Hello. Welcome back to Almost 30 Podcast. We are a podcast that started during the transition from our 20s to our 30s. And now we're so much more than that. And I'm getting that tattooed on my body. I know. (laughs) I can say it in my sleep, to be honest. <laughs> That's a good thing. You need to have a I know. your tagline needs to be. I totally agree. It's I love your it. Elevator pitch. I like I things I that can just sales, like I had to do my elevator pitch. Roll off our tongue. I like hundred percent. It feels good. I don't have to think too much. And it's true. Yeah. It's, it's true, baby. True. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're here. So 30, 20, 40, 100, age doesn't matter. We are so thankful you're a part of Almost 30 Nation. Lindsay and I started three years ago. I was working full-time at my job. Lindsay was a soul cycle instructor, and we just wanted to do something creative that we loved, and this was born. And now we are a team of women, of amazing females that do events, your podcast pro to help podcasters start, grow, and monetize podcasts. And we have a lot of fun things going on, but it's been a truly a dream and given me inspiration and faith in myself and the world around me, to be honest. Yeah, we are just finished out our tour for 2019. We've been on tour for a couple of years and we will be kicking it off again in the new year, but excited to have had some really great stops. We were in LA and Miami and Australia. Nashville. Austin, I mean. New York. Chicago, San Fran. Denver. Denver. (laughs) All over the world. What if we just named cities for three hours? (laughs) Des Moines. Des Moines. Oh my God, actually, TBT. <laughs> I don't know if you remember this, but there was, so when Lindsay and I, this is random. So when Lindsay and I first started the show, there was someone on Twitter that was like, shout out to Almost 30 Podcast. And we had probably six listeners at that mm-hmm. point. And it was this dude and he basically referred to, said on Twitter that he referenced us on a podcast and gave us a shout out. So we had like two listeners. We we're like, oh my God, like let's, listen, what happened? And it was a guy that created a podcast that 
literally just shouted other podcasts out. Oh, that's right. So it was like two dudes <laughs> podcast, Chicago guys podcast, sports and love podcast, basketball wives podcast, guys going up the fern podcast, cornhole <laughs> podcast, sports and fun podcast. Um, knitting, like, thanks for listening. Yeah, See you knitting later. For, <laughs> knitting for lovers podcast, almost 30 podcasts. And so our name was one of 400 names. And it was so funny because I actually made Justin listen to me too. I was like, whoa, check it out. Someone just shouted us out. And we listened for 14 <laughs> minutes before we found our name on the show. Oh my God. We were, so, I remember being so excited. Oh, wow. We're like, someone's seeing so, us. Someone shouted shout us. <laughs> v, v humbling. Oh, wow. V humbling. So, so funny. So yeah. Uh, but this episode is really, really exciting. I love when we do the best of end of the year recaps, because what we do is Lindsay and I go through the data, the numbers, and also the feedback from our community to what we should bring back and sort of bring back into our lives, uh, the nuggets of insight and inspiration and um, that we can share with you. So we have so much content that comes out through the year and you guys have had so much going on as have we. So it's really nice, just like you're doing for your planning for 2020 to kind of look back to 2019 and see what we learned. So within this, there's different parts of inspiration that we can all gather from, from amazing, amazing guests that we've had on the show that you guys truly have loved. Yeah. And it's always nice to just kind of go back, even if you've listened before, but to uh, revisit these moments and see if it lands in a different way. You never know. Um, Always the right time to hear what you hear. But our first guest is Travis Alabanza. And Travis was, you know, we had an incredible conversation with them Uh, They are a performer, writer, and theater maker, and they have been noted by numerous publications as one of the most prominent emerging queer artists, artistic voices. And we just talked a lot about being an influential voice, their spiritual practice and connection, dealing with harassment and, you know, being a queer voice in this space and, and really putting himself out there to empower those like them who are wanting to be themselves and be themselves out in the world rather than having to hide and, you know, conform to what the world might be more comfortable with seeing. And it's, it's, it was just a really beautiful conversation. Yeah, completely agree. The next one is Dave Asprey of Bulletproof, the CEO and founder of Bulletproof, Silky Face Dave. Love Dave. <laughs> we love Dave. Dave's one of <laughs> one of the best. Uh, this these quotes I actually really love. I, I am obsessed with them all because they relate to this um, point in time in which we started the podcast. So we talk a lot about your twenties and figuring out all systems in the body and that we really should make our health our own science experiment and making it really fun to figure out what's going to make you feel, look, feel and look your best. We also talk about women as biohackers, how we are better biohackers. So this is a bunch of health-related inspiration for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Next, we have Donna James. And Donna is a functional medicine practitioner, certified nutritionist, cognitive behavior, behavioral therapist. And she wrote the book, The Archetype Diet, which is a bestseller. And uh, so many of you reached out to us before we had her on and said, could you please have Donna on? And so we were really excited to have a conversation with her. And we talk about you know how to reprogram what we eat. We talk about those archetypes and how we can eat and live uh, for our particular archetype. And it's really not about dieting per se. This is really about lifestyle 
We also uh, give attention to the gut microbiome, which plays a huge part in our emotional body as well. And also we talk about how to reduce stress, um, just to come back to yourself a little bit more. Sometimes stress tends to just lead us astray from what's really important and who we are. And the next one is our lovely dear friend, Peta Kelly. Uh, This happened when we were in London. We got to record with her after doing an event on tour. And I just read these quotes and they actually make me want to puke. They're so good. I'm going to post them immediately online. Pita is always chock full of insight and inspiration. We talk a lot about her evolution into motherhood. So going from very successful businesswoman in her own right, an author and doing all the things to motherhood. We also talk about freedom of speech, uh, taking responsibility for our own life, for our relationship with social media and all of the things. Uh, She is a dear friend. We love her very much. And these parts are going to be awesome. Yeah. Next is Sally Krawcheck. So if you need some financial inspiration, how to just be, you know, not only a badass at work, but just in your own personal financial life, like Sally has got you, truly has got you. For example, we talk about, you know, every dollar that you invest and spend and you have in your bank account has an impact. And we talk about, you know, the impact that we want to have. We also talk about diversity and leadership teams. So she has been in an industry that is male dominated for, you know, all of her working life and just how she's navigated that and become so, so successful. She talks very candidly about uh, her relationship with her uh, previous and current husband and just kind of how that dynamic <laughs> works. And it was just like really refreshing, you know, juicy, luscious. Yeah, to have like a conversation um, with someone like Sally about that. It was uh, very human. Loved it. It was awesome. And then our dear friend, Pia Barancini, the designer creator of LPA a clothing brand under Revolve's house label that has a lot of celebrity fans. She is basically an Instagram famous light. She Mm -hmm. is super magnetic. And we had a super personal conversation with her at her house. So we talked a lot about just being in the social space, how she shares so much of her life online and um, how she gets so much feedback from haters and other people. We also talked about um, her finding her her amazing husband, Davide, uh, their relationship and um, their growth and love and just creating this beautiful, beautiful romantic life that she now lives. And then we talked to Cal Newport. We had an incredible conversation with Cal when we were in Washington, D.C. And he is the author of Deep Work, of Digital Minimalism, of Be So Good They Can't Ignore You. He has an incredible blog. He doesn't have Instagram goals. Wow. And uh, Cal is, you know, we we really dig into how, um, you know, this really intense digital age where everything is digital, we're on our phones, we're on our screens, everything, how, you know, minimizing that time on your phone can really create a a deeper uh, ability to focus and to be productive and to really feel fulfilled. And um, yeah, he gives us really tactical ways, daily hacks to minimize this time on your phone and strategies for families. Um, And he gives us a lot of science behind why this is so important. And then we have the lovely Whitney Port. Whitney was such a joy and delight to interview and have a conversation with. And during these inspirational bits, we talk a lot about the importance of honesty and partnership. We also talked about losing her father. So that was a really impactful part of her life. And we talked about its impact on who she is today. Finding gratitude and silver linings in grief 
talked about balancing motherhood with her career. She has an amazing aspect or amazing outlook on motherhood Mm -hmm. and a really refreshing perspective. And this is just a really fun conversation and a great way to round out our lovely best of 2019. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening and um, join the secret Facebook group. If anything resonated with you in this episode or in part one, let's talk about it. Let's have a, a larger conversation in the group with your future friends of almost 30 nation. And thanks to all of our guests this year, we are truly grateful for your time and talent and um, just your friendship too. It's mm-hmm. been, it's been really great. Yeah. We love you so much. We'll see you on the ad- outro. Bye. When you were talking to your mother and your family and kind of even the conversations that, you know, we're having or that uh, people are starting to have, I'd love to talk about, you know, the vocabulary of being trans, of being femme, of being gender nonconforming or non-binary, all of those things. Like, where did you first, where did you like learn how to speak in this way and how to express yourself so that people could understand you know, where you're coming from? And then what are what's like a way that we can kind of educate our audience and how to use certain vocabulary? I think it's like really important for me to just say that like these like words, like non-binary and trans and, and gender conforming, I think they're an aid in so many ways, but we also so have to remember that like we existed before these words too, right? As in like, trans people and people that we would now say are non-binary have existed throughout history from the beginning. And, and I think that's what's missed a lot in this conversation around, in the current like media conversation around non-binary identities is people are kind of framing it as this kind of new millennial trend. What that really misses out is like pre-colonization in lots of different places in the continent of Africa, in South Asia, in parts of India, in the Philippines, even going back in in Greece, there's been histories of people that have said like, I am not a man or a woman, I'm something else. And so I always start with that to kind of ground this like language that can seem really intimidating. Like I I think we shouldn't lie that this, this new terminology can feel intimidating, you know? And we're all, a lot of people are afraid to make mistakes and, and, and afraid to say the wrong thing. And I, I think that sometimes that's useful, but also just contextualizing it in the fact that we're not new really helps me. I'm like, okay, there's been loads of people that are like me that have used other words. I think I found non-binary. Sorry, I'm ranting loads, aren't I? But um, <laughs> I think I, I, <laughs> I think I found non-binary on the internet, like somewhere around. And it was like on Tumblr, I think. Wow, that's so cliche, but it was definitely oh, on Tumblr. <laughs> um, just, it's not helping the whole millennial narrative of non-binary. <laughs> but I, I, I definitely knew, I knew what I was before I found the work. I, I, I knew that I, you know, I knew that I wasn't a man. I knew that gender made me uncomfortable. And then when I found that there was these people that said, hey, actually, like, you can just be neither, all of them, none of the above. I was like, oh, I'm breathing lighter. Wow, I can kind of relax. I don't have to have the answer. So I feel like non-binary is really helpful as like an umbrella term. Like it means lots of different things. Like not one non-binary person is the same as someone else. Just like I don't believe one cisgender woman experiences gender the same as the other cisgender woman. I think that always helped me explain it to my family. It was like, instead of building this like kind of big wall between trans and cis, why don't we look at like everyone's gender and realize 
everyone is unique. Like, I don't believe that anyone is experiencing gender in the same way. You put mm. two cisgender people together, they're not the same woman. And for me, that's exactly the same way I think about trans is that like trans simply just means to, to change li- quite literally. But uh, it just means that you don't identify as the gender that you were assigned at birth. And I think the important word that I add, especially when I'm talking to feminists, is, is without consent. You know, we were assigned something at birth. The first, act of, in my opinion, the first moment we're born, there's an act against our consent. And we're told we're something without us saying that we are something. And Travis wow. is just saying, hey, I was told this thing that I am. And I'm saying, I'm actually not. I'm redeclaring my boundaries for my body. And I, I think that's why I get really confused when we put, when modern movements pit trans people against feminism. Because to me, what feels like at the core of a trans politic is autonomy over our body and consent. Mm, that is beautiful. Wow. Love that. <laughs> How does it feel to be influential? You know, like, I, I, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, because you are like, you know, I you serve as we talk about it on the podcast sometimes as like an expander for you know, um, not only mm-hmm. youth in your community that are quiet and scared and unsure and unable to fully express themselves. Like, what does that feel like? And is there? Is that something that's at the forefront of your mind or are you just, you know, living your life? Yeah, really good question. Also, side note, like I'm 23. So I like you. I feel like Well, you're uh, an old do you feel like you're an old soul? <laughs> yeah. 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 I feel I mean I, like I, I didn't I didn't mean you looked yeah. older than 23, like when I first put, posed that question, but because <laughs> you look young. <laughs> I love that you said I'm 23. <laughs> that makes me so happy. You're like, I'm 23. <laughs> <laughs> but I but I yeah. but at like, that I, young I, age, I can imagine it's like a it's true though. It's Dude, a that's lot. a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That's why like I have to open like whole com- like any conversation about I've gotten a lot better at this. I think like before I used to hide my age and also hide the nerves. And now like maybe it's practice of doing this quite a lot and interviews a lot that I, I, I look at interviews now as a chance to just both of us to like find out new stuff about myself. Yes. So now I'm just way yeah. more honest and I'm enjoying interviews way more and I'm having so much more fun doing them because I'm just like, let me just be honest, like 23, like, no. <laughs> but it means that like, um, yeah, I have a, I have a real... I, I, I do get told I have an old soul a lot. I think like I had to grow up from quite a young age due to like having to work loads of jobs and support myself and all these things. I think, yeah, it's scary sometimes, but I also, I try not to think about it. I try and just stay authentic to myself and do whatever I was going to do. You know, I've been speaking about this kind of things before I had 30,000 people listening or whatever, you know? I And so... If I just remind myself, like, what would I be saying if no one was here? Then, mm. then, then it would be this. That's how I test my authenticity. I think that's the only thing to worry about. And this stuff happens is, are you still being authentic to what you want to say? I guess, you know, it's also me as my platform grows. It's just about always reminding myself of maybe some other people that couldn't be having this platform and, and, Shouting them out too. So this is a good side note. If we're into UK trans voices, Kachenga is an amazing black trans mm. woman writer. She just wrote an incredible 
article on Vice about writing to trans prisoners that's incredible. Charlie Craggs, Monroe Birdgall, Sean Fay, these are all incredible UK trans voices. I think it's just reminding myself to do that. And as long as I'm still reminding myself that I'm not an individual, like I think that's the trap is that social media culture and influencer culture, quote unquote, all these things try and force us to like really think that we're like this individual thing. And it's reminding myself that I can never succeed as an individual, that the only way I can succeed is with a community. And to keep mm. that in the center of what I do relaxes me. What can you know our audience of 20-somethings and 30-somethings be doing today to be just in the position to be performing at a high level in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s? It's your job in your 20s to figure out all the systems in your body. Mm. And having looked at hundreds of people's brains at 40 Years of Zen, the the Neurofeedback Center, it's an expensive five-day intensive program for executives. Different people have different skills. And, And if you find that there's something that you can do, but you don't like it and it makes you tired, so you say, I better do more of that so I won't be so weak. You're totally doing it wrong. And, and that's a big theme in Game Changers. In fact, it's the first law in Game Changers. Is don't do that. Now, there are skills you must have. <laughs> you have to be good enough at this in order to function. Uh, but when you realize, okay, you have some superpowers and they're no better or worse than your friend's superpowers, they're probably different. Just like you have an ideal diet. And the foods that are most compatible with your body might not be the same as your friend. And neither of them is good or bad. They're just different. So it's your job to understand your strengths and your weaknesses and figure out what strengths do you want to double down on? And what weaknesses are you going to say, oh, thank God, I know I'm weak at that. I can hire that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and even if you're 25 and you're just doing your first company and you only have $12 an hour to pay someone, spend your $12 an hour to pay someone on the stuff that you suck at that makes you tired. Because... Yeah. If you look at what that's going to do for you over the course of the next 50 years, you will be doing really well. And there's a statement, and I'll, I'll paraphrase it, but it's something about uh, and you know, entrepreneurs. Uh, the, the millionaires figured out how to do a lot of things that they're good at figuring out how to do things. And the billionaires figure out who is going to do the things. Mm. <laughs> and it's a completely different mindset. People say, Dave, how did you scale Bulletproof the way you have? And I've Raised $68 million of venture capital. Bulletproof was a blog that I started on the side, what, in 2012, late 2011 or something? And it's 2018. And we're in you know, every Whole Foods, and Sprouts, and you know, all over Crushing the place it. on Bulletproof yeah. and Amazon yeah. and all that. So how is that possible? Well, <laughs> it's because I know what I'm not good at, and I know what I'm good at, and I learned how to hire people. So one of the things you could do is just be real comfortable with your strengths and weaknesses. Do your work on your emotions. Um, like you're talking about, how do you how do you feel your feelings <laughs> when you start a company? Your company's your baby, and if you choose to have kids, uh, the way I did, I I delivered both my kids at home. It, when you have a baby, you feel like it's a part of you. It's actually part of your energetic field. When you have a company, the company is another kind of baby, and it's part of your energetic field. That means anything that feels like a threat to the company feels like it's going to kill you, like a tiger in your living room about to eat you. And so you go through this huge amount of stress and anxiety. And it's your job to learn how to allow the company to exist and be supported by you, but to not feel like you're going to die if your company doesn't do what you want it to do, even if the company goes out of business. I've failed lots of times uh, in business. And it's that I feel like I'm going to die when my business isn't doing well that causes so much pain. And if you 
heard that, you said, how am I going to perform over long periods of time? Stop feeling like you are your career or your company and just realize you're entirely independent of that. Stop feeling like the ruling game changers, like how much money you make is going to make you happy. Um, one of the things I wish I'd told myself when I was 20 is stop chasing the money. <laughs> of the 450 people whose interviews got consolidated into the wisdom and game changers, not one single person named money, fame, or power as their three most important pieces of advice. And if you look at the way I phrase that question, if someone came to you tomorrow and said, I want to perform better at everything I do as a human being, what are your three most important pieces of advice? Well, when you get this from Nobel Prize winners and all this, this is the answer to your, you know, what would you do in your 20s uh, kind of a question. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure I could tell you in one answer, uh, but I do think the 46 laws here, the right answer is in there, but it's a different law for a different mm. person. And the book is written so that you go through there and you say, this one really stood out and there's exercises at the end of each law to see if it's right for you and tells you what to do. And just pick three and do those. And when you're done, you're going to have more energy. You're going to have more freedom. And then you'll probably pick a few more. But no one on earth is going to do all 46 at once. But this is, uh, this is a lot of wisdom. I, uh, I wish someone had told me all these things. And frankly, to grow bulletproof the way I have, I got to interview all these people and ask them the questions, which helped me be a better CEO and just a better father and things like that. Mm. I love it. Yeah, one of, just the last thing to say. The one of the things I really love about going into Bulletproof in Santa Monica is it's so funny, you know. And I don't know if this shift happened with Game Changers, but seeing um, the focus on gratitude and community in such a place that's you know science led. You know, a lot of the food and beverage there is based on science that you know helps us feel look better. But then to see you know your you are your community and these things, it always gives me pause. I'm like. Oh wow. You know, like we are finally at a place in time in our culture when we could merge these two, when we could recognize that in addition to the science. But the science of gratitude is profound because we can put people in fMRI machines and we can get EEGs. And a big part of the training that I, I do with people at 40 Years of Zen is hey, if you don't experience gratitude, you can't experience forgiveness. And this is, by the way, something that's a major thing in your 20s. And <laughs> your body picked up all sorts of patterns from uh, your early childhood. It's, it's basically a system trying to figure out how to stay alive in the world without any knowledge of what the world is. So if someone yelled at you when you were two, for a good reason, probably, like because you tried to stick your tongue in the socket or whatever, <laughs> like two girls do stupid <laughs> things, right? But at the time, it really you know, rattled you and it stuck. So now someone yells at you and you're 25 in a meeting and you freeze because that's what you did when you were two. You didn't. This yeah. was a decision you made. It was an automatic response. Well, we all have that. It doesn't matter how good you are. If you're alive, we all have just patterns that are dysfunctional. And it turns out to let go of dysfunctional patterns, there's a recipe that we use at 40 Years of Zen. And it starts with gratitude. And uh, then you can go into forgiveness, uh, which is really profound. And there's very spiritual spiritual teachings from the West, from the East, where they talk about compassion and forgiveness and, and all these things. I'll tell you, if someone pisses you off and you're carrying that grudge around, you want to perform well for the next 50 years, learn how to be grateful. So if someone did something that really hurt your feelings, really made you mad, you can look at it as, all right, what did I learn from this? And the first thing you do is gratitude. What's the one thing that came out of this that was good? And even if it's something you know, really bad, you know, I was, I was in a really, really bad car accident. Like, well, yeah, I'm in the hospital for two months, but 
at least I get a new car. <laughs> you focused on the fact mm-hmm. you got a new car, right? It, it wasn't worth it. Yeah. But your body is so wired that if you can just feel gratitude, it turns off all the inner whining and all the pain and suffering. So now you're being grateful for things that actually sucked, right? And then you go on to the next thing, which is, all right, I'm going to forgive the other driver for hitting me or whatever it is. And we teach people this with electrodes on their head to make sure that they're not cheating on it. But gratitude is that important because it lets you stop carrying a grudge because grudges are the most expensive thing. They have no return ever. They cost you all the time. And if you accumulate more and more of them over your life, you'll just get old and it'll suck. Most of the time, women do not necessarily feel a deep sense of safety. It doesn't need to be physical safety, but it's really emotional safety. So we don't always feel emotionally safe in a relationship. If we hold back in a relationship where we're constantly trying to tweak ourselves to what we think that person needs, we're not feeling emotionally safe with that person. And where did that originate from? Did that originate from childhood or the attachment that Lindsay, or lack of attachment or detachment that Lindsay was talking about? Did it happen sometime later in life? Like something's happened. And, and we cannot feel that sense of safety. Now, the sense of not feeling enough, we all have it. Every single one of us uh, feels that we are. Uh, not enough at some point. And we have established our self-worth based on an external factor. And those four factors typically are success and achievement, which feeds into my Wonder Woman, our physical body, which creates the femme fatale archetype, people pleasing and being there for others and never wanting to disappoint anyone else. And that's the nurture archetype. And then it's being different and unique and spiritual. And that would be my ethereal archetype. So this sense of self is developed out of a wound. It's developed because it's not enough. Like the femme fatale, which is the one that bases her self-worth on her physical body, is not that she received accolades as a child saying, oh my goodness, you're such a pretty girl. And like, you know, look at you and lots of attention. It's more that she didn't feel pretty. Maybe the sister was prettier. Maybe she went to high school and everybody else had better clothes than her. And she just felt not enough. And so therefore to catch up, it was that was her coping strategy. Or say the Wonder Woman, which is about success and achievement. It can be the father who's really encouraging her to excel. It can be the mother too, so, you know, that father-daughter relationship. And so one day she comes home and um, you know she's got like an A minus or something, and and it's like I know you could have done better. And so that feels like oh my god, I disappointed my father. I feel such a sense of shame. And then boom, you create this personality which is like I need to be the best. I need to be the best. I need to be the best. So while it's wonderful to to have this sense of self-worth when you're successful or when you look pretty, um, and we don't want to take that away, it's, there's a flip to it. You're really vulnerable when it's not there. And so it's truly understanding, well, where did that develop? And why? Because it's an untruth. It, it's often something very simple that's happened in childhood. It's a flippant comment or just some misinterpretations because... As, as a young child between really until the age of 21, your prefrontal cortex, which is where your rational thought takes place, isn't fully developed. So we're always viewing it through the lens of an emotional response. And it's like, I say child, children are little narcissists. It's all about them. And so if a parent does something, it's like me, like I've done something wrong. And so it's just that coping strategy to, to, to be enough. And as adults, we want to start to look at that to go, oh, wow, that was flawed. Right? I, I truly am enough. And, and how, do I, how do I rewind that? How do I sort of reprogram what happened in my childhood so I have this greatest, strength, greatest sense of strength to just 
be who I am. So I don't need to overdo anything. So I'm not working these sort of you know, 12 to 13, 14 hour days and skipping lunch. So I'm not getting into relationships where I'm the codependent and being like the doormat there. So I'm not obsessively fixated on food and calories and keto and so forth because I'm trying to, because I'm thinking that I need to be this certain size to be, to be enough or that I need to be the most spiritual, amazing, unique, creative person out there on the planet. So that's sort of where we end up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. The reprogramming is interesting. It's, and we've, we've talked a lot about it and done um, a lot of that work. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering if the, the way in which we eat is also a way in which we can reprogram, like the, the right, not the right way, but the more aligned way mm-hmm. to eat is helpful in reprogramming. And how, yes. what does that look like? Yes. It's the food is at the base. That's the way that I look at it. So if your food's off, let's just say that you, uh, you're skipping meals all the time, then your blood sugar levels are going to be destabilized. You're going to feel more anxious. You're going to feel more jittery. Your adrenaline and noradrenaline is going to be more supercharged. So to think that you can make really clear, rational decisions, it's, it's a little hampered by that. And if we don't watch what we're eating, then it will change the hormones in the body as well as the lifestyle. And those hormones, whether they're insulin or cortisol or our sex hormones like progesterone or estrogen have really far reaching effects on the body. And the way that I work with women is really looking at body fat. Most, that's what I specialize in is complicated uh, weight loss, adrenal and thyroid issues and digestive issues. And when I do a scan of a woman's body, I'm saying, where are you storing body fat? It's not so much about their body shape that they're genetically being given, but it's like, where do you store it? Because that will give me an indication of what the dominant hormone is. Mm. So most of us know that cortisol, you're still body, you're still body fat on your abdominal area. So if that's one of your chief complaints, then you know that cortisol's really cortisol and stress is your thing. And and you need to not only eat in a way that doesn't exacerbate those cortisol levels and adrenaline and noradrenaline levels by eating on a very regular basis. So like, intermittent fasting would be contraindicated if that was the case with you. Contraindicated, um, so like you shouldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. And 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 so for for if you tend to store body fat on your upper thighs, then I would say that there's a little bit of an estrogen issue there, whether it's a clearance issue, and you can mm. alter that with food. So that would be cruciferous vegetables, which are uh, the key component in that is dim and it helps to metabolize estrogen to a weaker form. But you could also be storing a little bit more fat on the upper thighs because you're a Wonder Woman and you're really stressed and you're eating up your progesterone because cortisol and progesterone share the same raw material and the body's always going to prioritize stress and cortisol over progesterone. So you can sort of start to store it that way. So by looking at a woman's body, and I want women to really understand it too, so they know what hormones are actually looking at, because it's pretty subtle. Like somebody can be carrying, they don't, you don't need to be carrying a lot of body fat. Like I can, like, you can read your five pounds extra to see what, to see what's actually going on. And it's helpful for you to know, gives you an insight into, wow, it's my lifestyle. It's my thoughts. And it's my food behaviors. And what can I do to like correct all of that. What's the the one? There's one of the types is over. So we talked about the cortisol, Wonder Woman, belly fat, 
the um, upper thighs is... Tends to be the nurturer. The nurturer. Yeah. And then the overall, gaining weight overall. overall. That's a nurturer too. And okay. so the nurturer, that'll typically be the first response. And that's because the nurturer is so depleted that she ends up comfort eating. And that comfort eating is really rich in carbohydrates. It could be a macrobiotic bowl. It doesn't need to be oh, like a bag of chips or something. right? And... That stimulates insulin and insulin tells the body to store body fat everywhere. It doesn't have a particular place. Mm. So if you are storing body fat everywhere, then you know for you, you're really sensitive to carbohydrates. And so a reduced carbohydrate plan is the one for you. And that's the type of plan that I've created for the nurturer in in the the book. Um, But not everybody needs to follow such a low carbohydrate-based plan. So for the other archetypes, they actually don't because they're not as sensitive to carbohydrates as, mm. as the nurturer. So when we eat carbohydrates, the body converts that to glucose and it's either going to go down two pathways. It's going to go to energy, including stored energy, which is glycogen, or it's going to go to body fat. And when the glucose and insulin is dysregulated, you are going to shoot it down to body fat and not to energy. And so then the nurturer feels tired and overweight. But if that pathway isn't impaired, then you can eat those carbohydrates and it's going to go to glycogen and energy. And so it'll support the energy levels and won't go into body fat. So that's why not everybody needs to be on these very restrictive, and they are restrictive, like the ketogenic diet is a really restrictive, uh, low carbohydrate diet. It's like 5%, including all your vegetables. So it isn't necessary to follow these plans to actually see success. Mm. And really my food philosophy is you want to be able to eat the most amount of food and the most variety while still seeing success. Yeah, there's like a there is a lack of appreciation for evolution and for change yeah. Yeah. on social media. So if your opinion does change, if you were to be one way and then you're another, it's like they deem you untrustworthy or they they think that you've you've gone mad or you know yeah. there's just like an inability to believe that someone may have learned something and yeah. changed their opinion and have grown yeah. or evolved that like I just can't really mm-hmm. get down with. Yeah. And that affects how people then show up. So then people are now showing up to please that idea of who they are rather than actually just be who they are and, and change and evolve and move on and, you know, and express different beliefs or change their mind about a belief. Or, you know, like I remember when I stopped being vegan, which my body gave me, the direction to, on no uncertain terms, tell me to start eating animal product again. After three years hardcore, vegan pregnancy, vegan breastfeeding, on no uncertain terms, my body told me that it needed animal, food from the animal kingdom again. And as soon as I shared a photo of a butterfly cupcake, I got, I thought you were a solid human, Peter. You just, just disgust at me and just how much of a shit person I was. And again, the other thing with social media is that no one on there actually knows you. And that's the truth. Like, I think about how many people truly know everything about me and everything that goes on in my life and all of my struggles and, you know, all of the things that, that I've been through privately, like, that aren't aligned for me to share. Very few people know that. And yet we, we make comments and assumptions about people as if we do. And we follow their journey as if we do know everything about them. You know, I have people who comment, Things like, what would you know about not having any money, Peter? And I'm like, do you want me to tell you about the the winters where we had no hot water and my mom had to boil water on the stove and pour it into our bath? I'm sorry I didn't include that on my Instagram bio. You know, do you want me to tell you the stories about my mom sitting up at night wondering if we're going to lose the house? Like, you know, it's, 
do you want to see photos of me working my $5 an hour job? Like it's, but people comment like that. And it's just like, sure, we can just be like, you know, you know, the, the age old like quote that we get from mentors everywhere is fuck the haters. They're just blinded by your light and all that stuff. But, but part of it's like, yeah, that's great. But I'm just at a point in my life where I'm like, I don't, I don't need to prove anything to anyone. And for so long, I felt like I did. Like I've been there. I'm not saying this as someone who's like holier than thou. I've just been there. I've been through the trying to impress, trying to maintain, you know, making things because I could. I've just been there. And I just, now I look at my daughter and I'm just like, you know, it just snaps. It just snapped me and it just snapped me into a perspective that's just like, I don't know. And, and, yeah, so it's, there's so much to it with social media. And it's it's not about, sure, Instagram can like take the light count off and Instagram can change all these things. But it's ultimately about us taking responsibility for our life, our nervous system, our relationship with social media and our phones, where we're looking for approval, where we're hiding. Like it's about us taking responsibility. And that's why I had to turn social media off for a while because I needed to go through that process in a way that was private and not giving people a bit, Blow by blows, you know, because it's, yeah, it's just, but, but again, it's such a powerful thing and we've got to acknowledge how, how brilliant it is for people, bringing people together. It's just that we as individuals have to get a grip on it and we have to not think that, yeah, we may have escaped the nine to five or the matrix or whatever you want to call it, but there's very much still one. And even in the personal development world, a system and a cycle that you can subscribe to and can keep you from your highest well-being. And for me, if I could like just have one message for everyone on social media, it would be, I'm not your coach. I'm not giving you advice. It doesn't mean that's not in a loving way, but everybody needs to be able to discern for themselves. And that's just, that's my belief with everything. You can't stumble across something and take such personal offense to it when it's, when it, if you truly believe in freedom of speech. You know, we, it's, yeah. we have to take the responsibility of discerning. Is this true for me? Is this person speaking about something that's relevant for me? Is this in alignment for me? Do I believe in this? Rather than expecting everybody to change their view to please where we are at in our life. And that's where it just got really tiring for me and why I'm just, I'll get on when I want to get on and I'll get off when I want to get off, but I'm not, it's not currently aligned for me to give people blow by blows of my life or to share things that I feel are, are not appropriate anymore. Thinking about emotional intelligence within the financial world and would it work? No. I, look, I'm at the point, nothing works, mm. right? I, I'm here, the next Blow diversity committee doesn't work. <laughs> the mentoring programs don't work. The sponsorship programs don't work. You know, I don't, because why? Because they haven't worked. And so uh, we're not waiting for the pipeline doesn't work. The, you know, the pipeline has been full at the junior level since the 80s, okay? What is the pipeline? Well, it's the, you got to hire half, half female and half male. And, and with our new diversity and our, you know, sensitivity training and our unconscious bias training, all of it will work through. But nothing's working. What works is two things. The CEO just friggin' decides to do it. Just decides to do it and like, you know, Mark Benioff or an Ajay Bang at MasterCard just closes the gender pay gaps mm. and takes no excuses mm-hmm. and fires people who are not, you know, falling in line, makes it as big a business priority as, you know, selling the new product, right? And truly believes it, 
truly, I, and I've had to do that at Ellevest where I've overruled. I mean, we started, right? We started diversity is our thing. We're half female, we're 40% people of color. And I've had to overrule my managers who then want to hire that person like themselves. And I have to say, your bias, you know, your subtle gender bias is showing, I'm going to overrule you because that's just what has to happen. So I think it's they decide to do it or two, we get them from the bottom, right? You know, we, we come together and say, leadership team, you know, no, no, this, this family leave policy isn't good enough, right? We got to change. So it's either strength in numbers or strength of the individual. How have you educated yourself? Like, what are some resources that you, you know, books you've been reading or places that you get your information to, you know, like when you talk about uncovering your cognitive biases, what have you done to do that? Yeah. You know, it's been really a journey. It's been one piece of research on top of another. I think I started with catalyst research, you know, which is where um, I first started to learn about the, you know, the, the business case for diversity. It blew me away. I remember being at a conference, being in a meeting with the woman who ran Catalyst and she started to talk about how, you know, as we just said, diverse teams outperform smarter teams. I'm like, I think I stopped her. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. We got to do that again. Talk to me, right? And then on top of that Harvard Business Review, you know, you know, signing up on Twitter or whatever you use for your news to, you know, to see what's coming out of, and the irony is coming out of Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, you know, the World Bank, all these financial institutions that talk about the power of diversity, but then don't actually practice it as much themselves. Mm. Wow. Just to switch gears a little bit, you have a son? And a daughter. And a daughter. And two cats. Oh, raising feminist cats. (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) Yeah. So what, you know, like raising a son, especially like, what is that like in, in this time? And what is important to you to instill in him? And is it, is it conversations or is it just modeling and doing what you do? Well, it's bringing him in. You know, the, I'll never forget the mistake I made when a few years ago, the um, documentary Misrepresentation came out, which is about the portrayal of women in mass media. And for the days before telling my daughter, it's coming out, we're watching it together. Get your homework done early because on Tuesday night, eight o'clock, we're watching it together. And she and I are right there on the sofa and Jonathan walks in the room. And I'm like, I am such an effing idiot because I told her we were watching it and I didn't tell him or my husband. And happily, he was like, hey, what's going on? And brought the whole family in, right? And so as a mother, you know, making sure you're having these conversations, not just with your daughter, but with your sons as well is super important. Mm. Can't wait. Yeah. And by the way, talk, you know, the the flip side, I would say, you know, one thing I don't want to leave here without talking about is talking to our kids about money the same way. So there's recent research that says that parents still today, when they talk to their sons about money, will talk about sort of in a building wealth, in an expansive way, in a, you know, have money, have plenty sort of way. And they talk to their daughters about saving, right? the money, protecting the money. And as we tend to grow up, uh, teen magazines, women magazines talk to us in an infantilizing and patronizing way about money. I mean, think about media. Think about, you know, Carrie Bradshaw. And she bought Manolo's. too many shoes. Yeah. She can't afford an apartment. Now, 
there's a whole generation who thinks they're Carrie Bradshaw, right? That's what we all identified with. I mean, I, you know, I probably was uh, Miranda. I was more Samantha. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Nobody was um, Miranda or Carrie, uh, Miranda. Samantha, Charlotte, 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 nobody Charlotte, was Charlotte. Nobody were Charlotte. <laughs> but they didn't they would admit, admit it. it. Yeah. <laughs> but think about that, right? Like how dumb can you be? Yeah. yeah. And so the articles are all about, don't buy the latte, you know, save the money. None of it. If, if on CNBC, Dylan Radigan turned to Jim Cramer and said, don't buy the latte, right? Or what's your money type? Are you a carrier Miranda? <laughs> and we, we never talk about diversified investment portfolios. And so- we grow up with a sense of money is not for us. We're sort of dumb about money. It belongs to the guys. Look, it's all the guys in the money industries, venture capital and, and Wall Street. And so as we were talking about earlier, there's no amount of money you make that you would actually be willing to share with your friends. You are much more likely, much more likely to talk to your friends about sex than yes. money, even though we started as a puritanical study. And women prefer to talk about their own death than money. So we have iced this desire in women, which I sort of say, if we were, if the guys who we love, but still, were to go back a hundred years ago and said, hmm, hmm, let's put together a plot to keep the women from being as powerful as they can be. What should we do? <gasps> I have an idea. Let's make money a source of shame for them. That's a great idea. And then when it's time for them to ask for a raise because they can't never talk about it, they have no idea how much to ask for. It's amazing. Wow. We'll keep them from investing. Yeah, we'll make them feel ugly. Yeah, right. It's yeah. going to be great. It will, you know, we'll make, we'll sort of equate feminism, you know, with anti-money, right? We'll make money tacky and unattractive. What was really nice was so many people, that, hundreds of people said such nice things to me after all this stuff happened. And like anyone who knows me, like it was yes. one of those where it's like, I have to learn to wake up in the middle of the night, like from a bad stress stream and be like, I am so proud of who I am. And sure, like, do I need to like uh, tighten some ends at work and be more detail oriented? Because I also feel like I live such a small life because it's like, you know, I have my family life and then I go to work and I don't do that many social things just because I'm busy and tired. And and then I like put things on the internet and I forget that like a yeah. hundred thousand people are seeing it. And so it's very, you know, it taught me a lot about really being, I have like a woman, like a spiritual advisor woman who's a family friend who I talked to. And she's like, you need to like really think about every little thing you put on the internet because that is energy that goes out into the mm. world. So I really now have to, it's also like, I can't just feel bad for myself or like harp on things. Like I, my life has to continue and I am the sole financial supporter for a lot of people right now. So yeah, like did a, I had to do a fucking Evian post after like all this mm. shit's happening when like my mom is, or my mother-in-law is sick in Italy. And I was like, yo, I got to like, I need to push this out a couple mm. of weeks. And they're like, well, the client. And I, and I was like, forget about it. And then I was like, well, my mom was like, you can't. Like, we have to pay the mortgage on this house. And I'm like, all right, well, what's the fucking compromise here? <laughs> like, Literally. Yeah. That's I, the like, worst when like you're feeling some type of way and you have a brand thing. 
Ugh. I'm like, oh, I'm feeling and like really new to me, depressed yeah. and shit. But you, I'm posting my skincare routine. Yeah. Isn't it? Wild? It's the like, worst. And I'm like, people know me, right? They know that yeah. I'm in Italy right now. So I can't just be like, you almost I have to create like a window. Like, hey, yeah, within yeah, yeah, this yeah. week window, my mood will when be I, when we'll, I'm we'll feeling days, my super mood. surface. Totally <laughs> bullshitting. It's been bullshitty. Yeah, what? it's what someone saw, was like, oh, you that. need that money. And I was like, yeah, I do, bitch. Yeah, bitch. <laughs> I do. I do. I saw that and I think you you did that very, very good. well. Thank I'm you. like, I was like, yo. I literally saw that. I'm like, yo. I've just never, like, I've never, I mean, we talk about this all the time. I've never. So here's also the thing. And um, when Paltrow said this when I heard her speak the other day, she said so many things that was like, it was almost like I was meant to be there because um, mm-hmm. there were so many things that she said that I feel like were like a gift to me. Mm. She also gets fucking rich. Oh my God. I think about that probably once a week. <laughs> and so someone asked her a question about it. And she said, if you have a blog or an Instagram account, you, and I always say, I use this exact term all the time. So it was, she said, if you don't follow journalistic decorum, which like I study journalism. So I'm like, this is not how this works. You can't just fucking write what you want and like not fact check or get timelines or ask for a quote from someone. So she's like, if you don't follow journalistic decorum, journalistic decorum if you don't have a, a brand within, that category. If you're just someone who decided one day to have an opinion about a lot of things, she said, you are not in the arena. They're not, I don't care what you say. And the cheapest, and she goes, and if it's for clickbait, it's even worse. And if you are using the anger that is trolls on the internet as like little shit bitch minions to like go destroy someone, that's the lowest form. Lowest form of social communication. So that, I was like, oh, listen, I'm all about calling some shit out and doing what's right. And if, and like, I will be the first person to be like, I fucked up. You called me out on it. Like, won't happen again. And thank you for making me more detail oriented and want to work harder. But when it gets nasty and personal, you are not in the realm. And I, and I pray for you. I, so I do that at night now. I pray for the people who are mean to me because can you imagine living that kind of life where you get excited yeah. to find something that will hurt someone else? The key transformation that changed us from, oh, I go on Facebook occasionally to see what my friends are up to into I go on it by default mm-hmm. at every down moment was this shift that is now about incoming social approval indicators. And that completely changed their relationships with our phone. And I think it was that more than anything else that has driven people to this point where they say, look, I don't hate the thing I'm doing in the moment when I'm looking at my phone, but I really hate the fact that I've looked at it five hours today. And it, it, and because you know that drive to the phone for that validation happened, I feel like now everyone just turns to their phone for all the answers. So whether it's the Google, the Facebook, mm-hmm. the Instagram, the app, yeah. Like it's just a one-stop shop for everything you need instead of maybe having a meaningful conversation about, you know, something that you're going through rather than Googling like, what do you do when you're sad after a breakup? Yeah, right? I mean, it's outsourcing of everything in yes. our life, you know? Yeah. Well, and it's not just outsourcing, it's also beginning to replace. Yeah. And so mm. this is something I discovered. So as part of the book, I did this experiment where I recruited, ended up being over 1,500 people wow. to take a month away from all of it. 
So I use the term optional, personal, digital technology, but basically social media, streaming media, uh, online news, basically anything that wasn't crucial for work or you know crucial for like finding when your daughter needed to be picked up from, from school or something like this, but anything that was optional. So were email Slack included? These are not included. So I see that as work. Okay, so this was just it. in your personal life, essentially the things on your phone. Got it. And one of the big lessons that came back from this is people were shocked to discover the degree to which they had allowed this to push everything else out. And the two things, especially for younger people, that were almost crippling in the first days of doing this 30 days of absence was the boredom and the loneliness. Mm. And there's this discovery that, okay, maybe almost any activity, the type of high quality leisure activities that require energy, but were, were deeply satisfying, how, what to do with your time that, you know, I'm going to go out there and do this. I'm going to meet these people. I'm going to work on this project. I'm going to help this community group. That gets really pushed to the side. It can be almost unbearable then to be faced with time. And then the loneliness factor the degree to which the sort of shallower back and forth connections on the phone had come to take over almost the totality of people's social lives. And when they took it away, there was almost a crippling loneliness, which is quite different than the sort of cycle of solitude and deep connection, solitude and deep connection that really defines the way that humans have always been social. And so it's really, uh, the phone has pushed out of people's lives a lot of things that are incredibly important for a deeply satisfying human experience and replace them with these, these shallower simulacrum of those type of experiences. You, you feel this sort of existential gnawing. Like, I know this is not quite the same as what I used to do, but it's just, it's, if you look at it all the time, it's distracting enough, it's pleasing enough that you can essentially paper that over and ignore it. And so when I had those 1,500 people basically rip that paper off the hole, it was a sort of an existentially fraught, but really meaningful experience for them. Mm. That's beautiful. And you know, I was thinking about the Facebook thing a little bit before you talked about that. Do you think that there's like a, a responsibility that a company like that has as it relates to their end users because they're so impactful on physiological parts of us? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Sean Parker, the founding president, came out a couple of years ago okay. and, and he basically did a mea culpa. He said, look, we're hackers. We were hacking your brain bad about it. It's like, that's what we do. Yeah. Didn't he say that he doesn't let his kids on it or something? Yeah. And that's common with a lot of, I mean, this, huh. this, this came out of uh, Nick Bilton's reporting on Steve Jobs back before he died. The fact that Steve Jobs sent his kids to Woodruff schools where you don't use any technology and you spend time outside. And it turned out that these were actually quite popular among Silicon Valley executives. And Jobs told Bilton, like, my kids aren't allowed to use iPads. No, of course not. Not, not till they're older. So the responsibility question is, is an interesting one. The the problem is the way I see it is it's like going to Exxon Mobil, yeah. right, and saying uh, oil and natural gas is bad for the environment. You you shouldn't extract oil and natural gas, and they would say, well, this is our business. Mm -hmm. That's what we do. And I think that's the problem. Facebook, for example, they mine data and attention, and they're really good at it. Their their cap right now is about twice that of ExxonMobil. They're worth about $500 billion, which is about twice the market cap of ExxonMobil. Their entire business model is extracting as much time and attention as possible. And I think it's built to a substantial degree uh, among the fact that they're sort of hacking people's psychologies. So to them, I don't think there's any way they could make any significant improvement along those lines without just uh, drastically reducing their bottom line, which actually legally they're not even allowed to do because of their, their shareholder responsibilities. Oh, wow. And I think, and I don't know if this is true, but it's, it's, it's a bit of a guess of mine. I mean, I, I, the fact that the shift in the conversation around, let's say, things like Facebook right now is 
focusing much more on things like privacy and more recently content. Yeah. It's bad news for Facebook because it brings a lot of negative attention. But I also think it's good news as far as they're concerned because it takes the attention away from the one thing they can't do anything about, which is their product being addictive. That's the thing I think they don't want to talk about because they can't do anything about that without significantly reducing their revenue. Mm. They can work on privacy without significantly working their revenue. They can work on content moderation without significantly reducing their revenue. But if they change their products so we no longer feel like we need to check it all the time, they're in trouble. I worked with a lot of people for digital minimalism where we went through and got very intentional about their Facebook use. Most people discovered in about 20 minutes a week, they can get about 95% of the value they're getting out of Facebook. Twice a week, they go on. There's a couple certain things to do, a couple people to keep up with, a couple Facebook groups, and that's it. And they're getting 95% of the value. That'd be devastating for Facebook if everyone started doing that. Wow. If you really just did what you needed to do to get the value out of it, as opposed to using it two to three hours a day, mm. uh, that's the end of that company, basically. I was thinking about when you were talking about, like, you know, growing up on TV in like the hills and the city yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Like, how do you think that has, shaped you like in a good way and then, you know, maybe in a negative way? So I think the biggest thing that it did, well, two things. One, it like gave me this exposure that I obviously would have never had and never been able to do all the things that I'm able to do now and talk to as many people as I'm able to talk to. That's like the obvious thing. But on like a not so positive side, I feel like it stunted me a little bit because I started filming the show when I was 18 and it got successful, maybe not 18, maybe 20. But anyways, it got successful pretty quickly. And there were lots of people doing things for you all the time and then like creating a life for you that you weren't creating for yourself, which a lot of 22-year-olds were doing. You know, a lot of most 22-year-olds are either graduating college or trying to figure out what they're doing with the rest of their life and really having to formulate their own paths. And I had like this team of producers that were making that all happen for me. Mm. You know, they were, and and this sounds like ridiculous. I know I'm not like complaining about it. I'm so lucky to have that experience that I had people finding me an apartment in New York and finding me the job at DVF and finding me friends to film with, you know, like all that stuff was really cool, but I feel like I never had to grow. Mm -hmm. And then when the show was over, it was like, oh my God, like now I really have to work hard and figure out life here because I don't have people working at it for me anymore. And what did you do? Like what were ways in which you kind of came back to yourself in that way? So I had a hard couple years, I I started a clothing line and I had actually started it with my father. And then my sister and my brother came to work at it. And my father got really sick and he ended up passing away in 2013. And my brother and sister and I tried to make it work and we just couldn't make it work without him. So I had to close the doors on that. And that was like major for me. I was like, what am I going to do now? Like I thought the show had set me up to have this huge success of a clothing line and what am I going to do now? And that's kind of when, you know, social media started becoming a thing and I was able to collaborate with so many brands and become like my own little marketing agency and then start the YouTube and reinvent myself in that way and really engage with people more. And I think it's because of social media that I've been able to like reinvent my career after the clothing line. 
So yeah, was that an answer to your question or did I just like spiral <laughs> yeah. into something else? Yeah. No, but I'm like, thinking oh, too. Where am I? Yeah. No, I mean, that's a really, well, one, it's like coming back to yourself during that time of like transition out of mm-hmm. the, the, you know, reality TV world, mm-hmm. but then like losing your father. Like yeah. I, I can't even begin to fathom like what that is like. Mm-hmm. And I did watch your episode on uh, Hollywood Medium. Yeah. Um, which was so powerful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The most powerful was, episode I've ever really? seen. Really? So beautiful. Yeah. yeah. It was so beautiful. And we've, you know, do, you know, had experiences um, with mediums, mm-hmm. but I just felt, I just, I, 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 I cannot imagine losing a pillar of the family mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. You know, your mom is so incredible. It's just like, yeah. So I, during that time, like, how are you... I th- I didn't know what I was going to do with the rest. I didn't know how I was going to survive. Yeah. Like my not only was he my father, but he was telling me what to do every day with the company. I mean, yeah. he was I just felt like I'm nowhere without him and it was brutal. I mean, it affected every part of my life. I was fighting with Timmy all the time because I became so insecure that I was like a burden to him. That, you know, I wasn't the person that he decided to marry, you know, like he didn't know three years into our relationship that my father was going to die and I was going to become like a sort of slightly depressed person. So it was really a tumultuous time. And yeah, it was, but there's always like, for me, and I talked about this in my podcast with my sisters, but there has been a little bit of a silver lining in that I don't know if my dad were still here, if I would have had the guts to quit, to stop my company. And the company had become a huge burden for me. It was huge responsibility and it was a family company. And because he was no longer around, I was like, I can't do this. This is too much of a reminder of him every day. Mm-hmm. And I, I, we can't make it work. I don't have the expertise or the knowledge. So once I closed the doors on that, uh, it was like, mm-hmm. oh my God, I could breathe again. And it opened up the door to so many other things that I wanted to do that I didn't even know I wanted to do. And like... I always say, obviously, if I had the choice, I would take my father back in a heartbeat. Uh, like, no questions asked, but it, it forced me to take a new path that I'm actually really grateful for. Thanks so much for joining us for the best of part two, 2019. It's been, it's been a year and we're super proud to be on this journey with you, this journey called life. And uh, we're excited for the new year. Yeah. I mean, you know, if we have not already need to express our sincere gratitude and thanks for all of your support and for showing up for one another and for showing up for yourself this year, meeting you guys in person on tour has been nothing short of astounding for the sheer fact of you guys are making moves and you guys are really owning who you are and taking on the task of getting to know yourself better and to dive into your own spirit and to really truly love and own your life. So huge kudos to you. Thank Mm. you so much for inspiring us every single day. And thank you again, like Lindsay said, to our lovely guests. We love you so very much. And we will see you on the next episode. It's going to be an awesome one with just Lindsay and I. So we will see you soon and have a great, great holiday. Love you all. Bye.